We're going to continue in this little series we've done about our vineyard DNA, who we are as a church, where we want to go, uh, some of the values that have uh, guided us for you know, a long time. Uh, you know, we live in a, a time that's really cynical. I, I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Sometimes it's, it's so uh, prevalent around you and that you slowly become cynical and then you fail to realize how cynical that you become. And the, the problem with cynicism is one of the problems, one of the many problems with it is that uh, it makes you the type of person that isn't surprised anymore by life. That uh, everything around you that should surprise you and uh, fill your life with joy, uh, cynicism robs you of that. So I'm not going to do a teaching on cynicism, although I'm tempted to. Uh, there, there aren't very many things that surprise people, but there are a few things that get people's attention, even the, the, the most hard-hearted, sort of a cynic of a person uh, can be surprised. Uh, not often, but th- that they can. And I want to tell you the story of something that's really the subject I want to talk about today. I want to introduce it with the story of a lady named Osceola McCarty. Now, probably, I don't know, probably know if anybody in this room, I heard this lady a long time ago, but uh, it's just because I was studying a long time ago about this, and, and I've heard this lady's story uh, told by others. Uh, how many of you have ever, ever heard of Osceola McCarty? Anybody? Okay, good. Then you'll love this story. Uh, Osceola McCarty was born in 1908 in a sharecropper's cabin on a farm in Mississippi. And she was the only child. Uh, you can imagine growing up in, in that kind of an environment. She never uh, graduated past sixth grade. She worked her whole life. Uh, she, li- she lived her whole life in this little community, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, she never owned a car. She never got married, never had kids. Uh, she walked everywhere she went. And she worked her whole life washing people's clothes and ironing them. And uh, in her 20s, one of her uncles passed away and gave her a little wood frame house, just a little tiny wood frame house. And uh, she washed and ironed three generations of Hattiesburg citizens' clothes. And she died when she was 96. And when she was 92, uh, she went at the urging of of, uh, people that she knew. She was a follower of Jesus. And uh, early in her life, she said, Lord, uh, she she said, she remembered praying this prayer, Lord, if you bless me, I'm going to be a blessing to other people. And of course, she just had this, the simplest life you could imagine. Uh, people didn't even know who she was. And she was just, she had a shopping cart that the local Piggy Wiggly would let her keep near her house, and she would walk down the street with it to the one mile to the Piggly Wiggly, get the food, and come back home. Uh, every day, she was polite to people. She was well thought of. The people in the bank loved her. Uh, and everyone was surprised one day when, uh, when she was 91 or 92, she approached the uh, University of Southern Mississippi Foundation and donated $150,000. Now, she had saved more than that. That was 60% of what she saved over a lifetime. And she had never been to that school. She just thought that there was a lot of kids 
that uh, could go to school, and she wanted, you know, what she had saved her whole life. And now imagine, all you've done your whole life is wash and press clothes for people. She said she, used to, she thought she was rich when she started getting $10 a bundle. And I don't know, you know, if you know how, you know how long it takes to wash your clothes and iron them, right? Uh, it's, 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 even if you're good at it, it's, it's not, you know, you're, you're, you're not hidden for the Forbes list doing that, right? But this woman had this vision that, that carried her forward in her life. She wasn't trying to save to, to be a generous person, but her whole life was lived that way. She'd always been generous, but she just, she just said, I just saved my money at the end. You know, I, I, I knew my time was coming and she so inspired people. This is the cool thing. Uh, she just did it privately. But, they, but that was the, at that time, that was the largest single donation by an African-American to that university ever. And maybe one of the poorest people in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which I've been to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I preached the gospel in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. That is a poor place. She inspired people. They, 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 some businesses in the city uh, were so overwhelmed by what she did that they did a short campaign to try to get people to match her, uh, her donations. And so they, it, it, within a, a couple of months of doing this campaign, different businesses just had cups out and things. People gave over $300,000 to this same scholarship fund that, that she had given to. And on top of that, of all the people in the world who would have been moved by her generosity, Ted Turner, who's a skeptic and you know a uh, uh, very successful businessman, was so inspired by her, he gave away a billion dollars because of her. She was the catalyst for him essentially giving away a large part of what he has. So... What I want to talk about today is, is life-changing generosity. Life-changing generosity. And I've told you Osceola McCarty's story. I want to tell you the story uh, which I heard from the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, he describes this church or this group of churches to the Corinthians and, and tells them their story. And he, it compresses it. So we're just going to look at the first part of the story. But I want you to, uh, if you would, open your Bibles with, you, with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to start at verse 1 and go to verse 9. Now I'm just going to read through verse 7 first. And what I want to do today is I'm going to, I've told you Osceola McCarty's story, and I'm going to tell you the story of the churches in Macedonia, then I'm going to tell you the story of a vineyard church, and then I want to apply it to our story and, and to your story, okay? So let's pray. Lord, uh, you know, your word says that, that the heavens declare the glory of God, that everywhere around us, uh, your story and your truth is being spoken, and uh, we thank you for your word and the lives of people like Osceola McCarty and, and so many others who, whose lives are just as amazing because of you. 
Uh, thank you for your grace that you offer us, and we've received so much of it. We want more, though, and uh, we want the grace we receive to reflect back on you, that people would know how good you are. So meet us here as we read your word in Christ's name. Amen. So in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, just like Osceola McCarty. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did, and, excuse me, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So Paul just compresses something there that if you read the letter and the, the letter before, he's describing how the churches in, in, in uh, Macedonia and all over the, the, the Gentile world had heard about this famine, this, this time of real privation that was going on in Israel and the church there, the Christian church in Jerusalem, which had been sort of the mother church for all the churches in the world, those believers in Christ, which had sacrificed so much to spread the gospel, they were suffering. And so the, believe, the Gentile believers were, were out of love for Jesus and for the debt of gratitude they owed to the Jewish believers. They started collecting money like we do, you know, when there's an earthquake somewhere, or there's a tidal wave or, uh, you know, some sort of a problem. Uh, people are moved and, you know, we send donations to organizations that, that help out. Uh, the folks who were going through these suffering. Well, this is what they did back then. Uh, and Paul said that uh, he, was, he was commending this generosity to Macedonian churches. And, but what he said was, was interesting. He said, uh, out of the most severe trial, they, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in their rich generosity. So what he was saying was that, that and and. He was speaking short, and he's saying, you guys know how hard it's been for those Macedonian churches. That the situation that they're in is not conducive to them being generous at all. And despite how hard their lives were, they gave beyond what we ever expected them to give. Like Paul, who had some pretty high expectations of everybody, he saw them and said, well, I think they're going to you know, be able to contribute this much. And when he heard how much they gave, he was blown away. What? How did they do that? And so he's commending their generosity to the Corinthians, who were actually, Corinth was a very prosperous city. And a lot of the Christians in the Corinthian church, you know, it was, like I've always said, that the church there uh, reflected the whole community. But they had some uh, real well-to-do people in the church in Corinth. And, the, you know, it was a very prosperous community. And so... Paul said that they gave, despite these difficulties, they gave willingly, even eagerly, and, they, and their giving surprised him. 
Now, truth be told, that's, that's the way giving works everywhere, is typically when people are going through hard times, they give less. Because, you know, it's just human nature. Uh, there's an organization called uh, the Philanthropy... I've got to find where I wrote this down. The Philanthropy... Oh, the, the, the Philanthropy Chronicle. And they, they do a lot of research on giving uh, in all kinds of uh, sectors of the United States. And what they did uh, with federal records is they studied the giving, the American profile of giving in 2006, and then they studied it again in 2012. It was really interesting some of the things they came up with. Uh, I'm going to just sometimes... Using numbers can kind of cause you to uh, go unconscious, so I don't want any of you to faint here. It's hard to you know use numbers and people to get it sometimes because it's it's boring. But what they compared was how people gave in 2006 before the recession, and how people gave in 2012 towards the end of the recession or when the, the country was starting to recover at least. And what they found really surprised them. What they found was people who earned $25,000 a year or less increased their giving almost 17% by 2012 compared to 2006. So in other words, probably the people who were the hardest hit by the recession, their giving increased as time went on. The ones who who were hit the hardest and earned the least. Then, if you went from the 25,000 to 50,000 range, their giving increased 8.7%. 50 to 75,000 a year household income, it went, their giving increased 5.7%. 75 to 100,000, 3.6%. Now, this is where it really changes. The giving of people whose households were 100 to 200,000 actually gave 3.3% less in 2012 than they gave in 2006. The very people who we know financially were the least impacted by the recession. And then on top of that, the people who earned, whose household income was 200,000 or more, gave 4.5% less. So, you know, giving is strange. You know, the, the, uh, generosity is a, is a hard thing to get your head around sometimes. This is why Jesus said the rich have a hard time getting into heaven. Not because they're more unrighteous than the poor. Uh, the poor are just as unrighteous as the, as the rich. But there's something about people who make less versus people who make more, that people who make more really struggle with being more generous as they get more. Now, I just read this week about a billionaire in New York City who has, who has a famous art collection, 3,500 paintings uh, that he displays. He's a real famous guy, I won't say his name. Uh, and he's giving, he's, he's made provision for the next couple of years for all of this collection that he loves so much. He seems to be, you know, a, a very generous, wonderful man. He's giving all that collection away to endow this program to educate kids in Harlem. Uh, but, you know, when you're a billionaire, you can do that. 
It's not that big a deal. And for, for someone who has billions of dollars to give away a billion dollars, it really isn't when you think of it. But when people who have only $25,000 a year to live on give away more when they've been so hard hit, it has to get your attention, right? It has to. And so it got Paul's attention, like, wow, what is it that motivates these Macedonians? And so let's, let's ask, what, what could motivate us? What would motivate anybody to be that generous? Or to be more generous, let's say, than, than we are. Look at the next verse, starting in verse uh, 8. Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So he's, he's saying, listen, I want you guys to, to be in on this, this giving project, this this." gift we have that we're, uh, that we're trying to offer the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. He says, for you know, now this is the thing he appealed to them. And this is the one thing about what, what we want to be. Our vision as a church is to be a gospel-centered community. A growing gospel-centered community living for the sake of others for the glory of God. Well, when the gospel is at the center of our lives, that becomes the motivation. That becomes the engine. That becomes the power plant for everything. And so when Paul's trying to persuade them to give, it's no surprise where he turns for motivation. All right? Now, you may think, you know, I've been to churches before where, I, I have been, and maybe you've been there with me. I've been to churches before where they take an offering up, and they count it, and if it's not enough, they pass their offering basket around again. And if it's not enough, I've seen four offerings. All right? I won't ask you if you've ever been in a situation like that. It's interesting. And... Uh, is there anything wrong with, with churches asking, yeah, to, for, for the people that are part of the community to support them? No. And, and several of those churches that I've been in that have done that have phenomenal outreaches to the community where they care for people who are in real need and they, get, they have a budget and they got to meet it. And a lot of times people just don't, don't want to be as generous. And so those pastors are pretty bold and they're saying, hey, you know, we're just going to... We're going to keep passing this offering basket till you feel so guilty, you give. You're so embarrassed. Well, I think one of the times I saw this happen, if he would have done what Paul said, he maybe would have only had to take two offerings instead of four. Because Paul understood something that, that we have to understand, that I want you guys to get, okay? Because this is where we're at. This is where we've always tried to be as a church. What Paul said here. He said, okay, how do, how do I get them? He says, for you know, in verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul was saying these Macedonian Christians, their generosity flowed out of God's generosity. They had experienced God's generosity and it empowered them to be generous. 
because they saw what God had done for them in their need when they didn't deserve it, and it changed their hearts. It changed the very structure of their hearts. The Bible says that the gospel, when we, when we receive it, when we really believe in Jesus, it takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. It takes a heart of take and makes it more of a heart of give. It takes a heart of bitterness and makes it forgiving. It takes an impatient heart and makes it more patient. And the virtues, the before and after virtues, a heart of unfaithfulness to a heart of faithfulness, or of increasing faithfulness. That's the, that's the gospel that, that, you know, you hear. Now, sometimes you wonder, how come it doesn't have that kind of power in my life? Well, we can get to that, but Jesus saw their need, and what they understood was they were dead in their sins, they were dead in their rebellion against God. They were dead in their carelessness of God and other people, unless it benefited them. And they saw God come, not just with more rules, but God came into their world, and he became flesh and blood like them. And it, it, it implies in this passage, he became flesh and blood, he became sin, and he became a curse for them. That's at the heart of the gospel. They understood that this. Now, I mean, I want to tell you something. There isn't probably any of us in this room who don't have something in our life, some part of our life that's out of control. Some appetite, some behavior, some uh, preoccupation. And that thing that's out of control in your life, it, it had a really innocent sort of beginning where you had a need in your life you had a hunger in your life, and you thought, I wonder if this will help. And one bite told you, one try, one experience said, that's pretty good. I could, I could do with a little more of that. Uh, that, would, that you know, my life would feel a lot better if I could have a little bit more of that. And so you took a little more, and you took a little more. And then at a certain point, though, you found... It was like this teeter-totter that suddenly you started not getting as much out of what you did before. And you had to do more to get as much as you had. And then you had to do more and invest more and invest more and invest more. And pretty soon you found out my life is in a com complete control of this and it's, it's, it's ruining my life. It's, it's just taking me apart little by little. I'm becoming a person I never dreamed I would be, right? That's the story of every human being. These, and, and we are the authors of all of that. Now, somebody, sometimes it's our home. We saw our parents do certain things, and that was just the way our family did it. And we took that in and made it a part of our life, and then we saw the same carnage in our life as we saw in theirs. But, you know, when you grow up in certain environments, it just seems normal. Everything seems normal. The, 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 the strangest, most destructive things in the world seem normal to kids who are in the middle of them. They just, they don't tend to know that, there's, that the world isn't meant to be like that. And 
What these, what these Corinthians knew, what the Macedonians knew, was that Jesus became flesh and blood for them. God didn't just lay a, a law on them. He saw their need, how their lives were out of control, and no one cared. The gods that they had been taught about demanded so much from you to get anything. And see, the gods of money and sex and power, which are all the things that control our lives, they demand things of you, and they don't give you anything. You find out in the trade-off that starts innocently, it ends tragically. And you're the one that's paying through your nose over and over and over and over. How many of us started that way with financial debt? Just, just pull the card out. I feel better. That's magic. I'm not even snorting this. And it feels good. Whoa. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I knew a guy named David Wilkerson. And he, he taught a bunch of young preachers years ago. He said, he said, you guys, if you ever lose your compassion for people, you need to just go sit somewhere and watch people. Just really look at them. Look at their faces. Because, you know, you, you walk around, you don't really notice people. And I, I, I've sat at the mall and watched people come in. Okay, people walk in. They have one look on their face. When they walk out with bags, they look different. They look like, whoa, the world is a happier place. It is. And then the credit card statements come, right? And the world's not as happy a place. And the sad thing is, sometimes what, what seems to fix the unhappiness of the credit card statement is more of this, And, and the God of money takes more from you and more and more and more. And this worked in the first century. It worked this way in the, in the 15th century. It works that way in the 21st century. If Jesus doesn't return, it's going to work that way in the 30th century if, if this earth continues spinning the way it is because the God of this world only takes from you. And the good news says, and they knew it, is that Jesus came into the world they lived in. He was born as a poor baby in a poor family in an occupied country that literally everyone around the world hated. People hated the Jews everywhere. Jesus wasn't born in Caesar's household. And that was what was so attractive about the gospel was the God who offers us life came into the world in, a, in as bad a situation as you can imagine. And then, despite the fact that he chose that willingly and he deserved love and admiration and respect, he got the opposite of that all the way through his life for us, for each of us. And there's so many times, there is, an, again, a person in this room where you haven't sat alone sometime and wondered why people didn't love you. And I think that's, an, that's, I think that's a, a noteworthy thing to ask because we bear the image of God. And even in our imperfection and our, even our sinfulness, God loves us in a profound way. 
But you've sat alone in a car, in a room, in a bar, in a crowd, and know what it's like to feel like nobody freaking cares about me. Right? It's heartbreaking. Maybe, maybe you've walked out of a, a courtroom and just signed the divorce papers. You know what that's like. Maybe you've gotten fired one day and you've experienced that rejection. Maybe people look at you and just don't even know the pain you're in. And even when you let them know, they don't care. That's, that's, that's normal. That's the way this world rolls. That's the way it rolled back then. And they heard of this God and his son, Jesus, who came to them where they were, experienced all that they went through so they could identify with him. He wasn't a stone God they went and worshipped and they gave the best they had for and got nothing for it and got screwed even more. He was one who took that for them. He took their place. And there's something that that does to the human heart when you hear that and you get it. And not only that, but all the needs we have, like everybody here needs love. Everybody here needs security. Everybody here needs to be understood. Everyone here needs purpose and significance. Everybody here needs to belong. And Jesus came offering all of those in spades, and he emptied all that out to everybody he met. He gave that to every person he met, all those things. Whatever they needed, he would give it to them. And then in the end, he lost all of it. On the cross, he was stripped of all of it. He lost everything. And he did it for us in our place. That's what the gospel says. And that when we believe in him and we admit he did that for us and because of us, then life begins to, his life begins to come into us. His love begins to come into us. His understanding begins to come into us. The significance he sees in us, the purpose he has for us, the sense of belonging that sometimes we don't get from others, we get from him, and the love that we need, and the security. It just gets poured out on us. Sometimes it's a trickle and we wish it was more. But when we open our heart up, it comes in. And they experience that. These, these Corinthians and Paul, I'm sorry, the Macedonians, Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so what they experienced was they became rich in every way. They were poor. And he came into their poverty, and then he gave them their riches. Nobody had ever done that before. Maybe someone might see him in need and throw a coin their way. But no one ever gave their life and exchanged their whole life for them. But that's, that's the promise of the gospel. And they experienced that. And the, the simple message, the point I want you to take away today is this. Generosity makes you rich. God's in parentheses, God's generosity makes you rich. God's generosity changes you. And then if you become generous, like he was to you, you become rich. And he describes here three kinds of riches they experience. They experience riches of character. As they became generous because God had been generous to them, Paul describes, if you read the rest of the letter, this rich character that the 
Macedonian believers demonstrated that was linked to their generosity. He goes on and he describes the incredible sense of security they had. The sense that I'm going to be provided for. That just welled up in them. That gave them the ability to give and be generous. And you know, the rule the world operates under is money is what makes everything work. Get as much as you can and hold on to as much as you can because that's where the security is. Well, that's a lie. That's a total lie. But that is sold to us day in and day out, right? I mean, we're, we're between friends here, right? Isn't that true? Get as much as you can and hold on to it. And be suspicious of anybody who tells you there's anything else you should do than hold on to it. You know, there's a book in the early, uh, that they used to use to disciple young Christians in the early uh, second century. And one of the sayings about money that they, they passed on was, you should, hold, you should hold on to the money in your palm until it sweats and not let go of it until you know who you're supposed to give it to. They would teach the new Christians that. Instead of holding on your money and just sweating, hold on to it until it sweats, until you know who you're supposed to give it to. And it, back then, they had as hard a time of giving as we do today. But they experienced character when they were generous. They experienced security when they were generous. And then they experienced influence. Influence. Paul was describing them as a model for the Corinthians. Osceola McCarty became a model for an atheist. Ted Turner, this simple woman who washed clothes, inspired a man who was an interesting person, to say the least, to give away a billion dollars. She would have never known that her life could ever have that kind of influence. Isn't that amazing? Generosity makes you rich. And that's not, I'm just, I just gave you three ways that they became rich. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to be rich in character? Wouldn't you like to be rich in a sense of security? Wouldn't you like to be rich in terms of the influence of your life? I mean, if you, if you aren't, I think you should, if those three things don't find some attraction to you, hold some attraction out to you, A, you should check your pulse. B, you should check your faith and your heart and say, what is it that I'm aspiring to in this world? How much am I I believing that money gives me security and holding on to it is important? Or money is a means to getting other things that I I desperately need? Because a lot of times when we talk about generosity like this, it's like, you know, people start putting their hands in their pockets and like putting their hands on their wallet. Like, I feel an, an offering coming at the end of this talk. Uh, and, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling a little threatened here, right? And, but that's not where this is going. God's trying to say something to your heart. He's trying to show you, 
If you want to be rich in the most important ways, generosity has to be part of your life. It has to be at the core of your life. Not just something you do here and there after you hear a teaching like this. Or, you know, you see the little shoe boxes that we do. Or you see a picture of a pot-bellied orphan somewhere in the world. Or you, you know, that can't be the motivation that drives real generosity. That's why you have to go back to the gospel and you have to look at what Jesus did for us and say, he was generous. I need to be generous as a lifestyle. Not just accidentally, not just intermittently, not just every so often, but as, a, as, as part of the warp and woof of who I am. And so what's the lesson to us? I want to tell you the story, one more story, then I want to uh, sort of uh, wind up. One of my good friends, Steve Shogren, uh, planted a church in Cincinnati. And how, how many of you guys know where Cincinnati is? Okay. I'm just trying to get an audience. I was losing you there for a while. I want to get you back. Get you back. I got too close to the wallet, the purse, I know. So now I'm going to get you smiling again. It's, yeah, it's good. It always works. So uh, my friend Steve, and we've been friends since the 80s. And he, we were just talking uh, about a month ago. He called me about something. We were chatting. And, uh, and Steve always amazes me. He, I mean, he's got a the wildest life, and he's been through hell and back uh, with his health and a lot of things. But Steve and Janie moved to Cincinnati uh, back in the early 80s, and uh, Todd Hunter had persuaded Steve to move to Cincinnati and said, I've got a big group of people that want to plant a vineyard church, and I need a pastor, and you know, they're, they're ready for you. So Steve showed up, and it was 12 people. Right, Steve moved from California, where you know, he, had, he had the life, to Cincinnati. Now, Todd had moved from California to Wheeling, West Virginia, which is an even further leap than Cincinnati. But Todd had already had God play the trick on him. He just kept playing it on other people. So Steve moves there and thinks, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to make a living pastoring 12 people. I quit my job, and my wife quit her job, and we, we left Southern California for this, and, and God began to speak to him. And I won't tell Steve's whole story, because I want, I want to show you about generosity, but one of the things that God really worked into Steve's heart was this whole idea of generosity. And one of his best stories was, and the, the, these two stories linked together, uh, was God began to speak to him, like, like he spoke to us, it inspired us, he said, uh, I'm going to send all the people, in a sense, that nobody else wants to your church. Now, isn't that what you love to hear when you're a pastor? <laughs> nobody else wants these people. I'm going to send them to you. And that's the people that I'm going to do amazing things in and then through. And so Steve, you know, they went from this little 12 people into a barn and met there for a while but the church just kept growing. But it was always frustrating because all the people that nobody else wanted showed up at Steve's church. And God began to speak to him and say, it's hard for me to get through the story, sorry. Because uh, it's so like God. He said, what, Steve kept wanting to quit. Saying, God, I'm so tired of these people. They're so difficult. Why are you sending me all the people nobody else wants? And this wasn't the only thing God said to him, but this kept coming up. And he said, 
he would, he would be like complaining to God on Monday morning after Sunday. And the, the Lord would say to him, uh, that's who I'm sending you, and I want you to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a sign, and I want you to know that this is me. Because, you, you know, when you're, God, I've been enough times wanting to quit that God has to show you things that help you to stay the course. And so he says, he's in a drive-thru, and he says, God said, open the car door and look down on the sidewalk, and there's a sign there for you that this is my will for you. He looks down, and there's this penny he picks up, the, he looks around, he sees the penny, but he looks around, he looks under the car. <laughs> Where's the sign? And God said, that's the sign. He picks it up, and it was this penny that had been in the parking lot, and, you know, it's this scraped up and defaced penny. And he looks at it, and he goes, what does this mean? And he said, this is like this messed up penny, God. I don't even know if it's worth a penny. And the Lord says, that's it. That's the sign. And he realizes that's it. This is the people God's sending me. They, be, they bear his image, but it's all defaced and broken up. And he said, and, and, and now I've seen this, so it's, this is true. Every time he would, he would be like that, God would speak to him, and he would open his car door and look down, and there would be a defaced penny. And Steve has a jar with hundreds of pennies in it, and they're all defaced like that. Okay. And what God told him was, and one of the things that God told him was, you have to be generous. I'm going I'm to build this church on generosity, on giving. I'm going to teach these people who don't think they have enough in life, who've been shortchanged, that they have me, and so they have everything that they need. But I'm going to teach them to give, and I want you to model it first. So the church, for year after year after year, doubled. Double, 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 double. And they, they got to the place, they were meeting, they finally bought their own building. And I remember going to the vineyard when it was in a, uh, in a school, and then in this trade school, and then they had their own building. They, they, had this, they bought this Baptist church, and it was on four acres, and it, and it was a church building with about this much grass around the building, and then a parking lot. And they... Uh, moved into that church, and they just kept growing and growing and growing until they, and the, the building held 600 people, and they had people in the basement. They had, you know, video everywhere. And they used to have eight services on a, win, on a weekend. Eight services. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday evening. And the church just kept growing and growing, and they just kept giving and giving and giving. And uh, one day the Lord spoke to him and said, okay, it's time to, you know, build a bigger building. And so whenever you do that, it's hard if you know that area of Cincinnati they're in. It's, it's, a, it's a nicer area of town in certain respects in terms of the price of land. And so anyway, they're going through the whole fundraising thing. And they, they raised a, a number of millions of dollars for this new facility. And it was going to allow them to grow and they got to a point where, and Steve came in, and he, he felt like he said, I think God's spoken to us. You know, we need more money than we have. And so we really need to be generous. We've always been generous. We're going to be generous. And so they prayed about it. And they took their building, which was worth about a million dollars, and they gave it to an inner city black church. They gave it to them. They paid it off. And the, uh, the church had been involved with the vineyard for a long time. And this church had really struggled, you know, to find the right facility. And uh, the past, the, 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 you know, the church is just a loving, wonderful church. But they, they lived in a community where the people just didn't have any money. 
They didn't have the money to do anything more. Well, they, they, they had a hard time seeing that they could do more. And so Steve and, and, and some of their staff walked in on a Sunday morning and gave them the building. And it was like, the churches blew up, you know, with, with amazing gratitude. They gave them a million dollars. When they needed, you know, millions of dollars. And the money poured. It was like, just like God opened the windows of heaven. And they didn't do it for that reason. They did it because they wanted to be generous. And their church has continued to grow. They planted tons of churches. But Steve modeled that like Osceola McCarty did, like the, like the churches in Macedonia did, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And when we talk about a vision for a church, I really believe that every church, God has a purpose and a vision for it. And I think every church is supposed to be generous. But I believe that's been something we've tried to do, however poorly we've done it. We've tried to be an outwardly focused church that's generous to people that, that can't give us anything back, that, that we really feel like that's part of what we're supposed to do. But I think all of us get tired at different points in our life, and we kind of think I'm spent. I don't know if I have it anymore in me, right? Anybody ever felt like that? Like you, you buzzed along for a long time, and you kind of get to this place. Th- thank you, Diane. One person back there. The rest of you are the Energizer Bunny. But Diane's back there. She's going, I can't even get my hand up. That's how I feel right now. Yeah, Elisa. Yeah, Elisa's been sick for three weeks. There is more in Christ through us than we know. And our vision is to be a growing gospel-centered community that lives for the sake of others for the glory of God. That's our vision. And that means that, that's something that's way out there. We're not there. We're not growing. We're barely gospel-centered. We struggle with living for the sake of others. And probably what we're trying to do the most is do it for the glory of God. But we have Jesus. We have the gospel. The center of that whole vision is the gospel of Jesus. And part of the vision is it is something that's supposed to attract the attention of other people. Osceola McCarty caught people's attention all over the world. The UN eventually celebrated her life, believe it or not. The churches of Macedonia are spoken about every, in every Christian community across the world for all time. And I believe we're supposed to be like that too. And what I want to ask you to to think about is the only way that this can ever happen is is if you give your heart to Jesus. You really give your heart to Jesus and you keep giving your heart to Jesus. And that you experience that you're captured by His grace. I can't motivate you to be generous except by pointing you to his grace. And if you get a hold of that, we just need to step back. Because that is an engine that will, that will generate energy in you that's unlike anything you've ever known. 
but we have to keep opening our heart up and giving our heart to him. And the truth be told, when we feel least like we can do that is the time that we can do it the most effectively. And you need to plan to give. You can't give accidentally. You have to plan to give. And that means, like Dave Ramsey says, a lot of things have to line up in your life that maybe aren't lined up now. So that's why the planning part of this is really important. And you need to give regularly. And you need to give sacrificially. But but with all those four things, giving your heart to Jesus, planning to give, giving regularly and giving sacrificially, if you don't hold on to God's promises, you won't ever be able to keep doing it. You just won't. Uh, John, John Berry asked me uh, about a friend of his who was an, a, a skeptical kind of a guy, didn't, doesn't believe in God, and he was asking a question about faith, and he said something about tithing, right? And why would, I, why would you tithe? That just seems stupid. You know, why would you give, in other words, why would you give money to the church or give money to anything? Because if you're operating under the idea that get as much money as you can and hold on to it as long as you can, then it doesn't make sense to do anything other than that because you have less and you're not holding on to it. And you can't get what you want with less. And I don't know, it just struck me. I just said, well, that may seem foolish, but what would you say to a farmer who brought his harvest in and, you know, and during the harvest season and then just consumed all of it. I can tell you what farmers would say. Farmers would say, that guy's an idiot. That guy's just committed financial suicide. Because if he doesn't hold back some of that grain for seed to plant the next year or enough money to buy seed to plant the next year, He's done. He should just put the for sale sign or the whatever other sign you put out there for bankruptcy because what what you gather in has to become seed that you plant or you're going to not have enough. God's put that in the way the world works and farmers who are really close to the ground who we all owe a debt of gratitude to because we're going to all leave here in just a few minutes and we're going to eat something that they've made. They know we have to do that, but a lot of us don't. But Jesus showed us by his life and then the message and the promise he gives us that we can become rich in all the most meaningful ways if we become generous. And I think there's some of you here, I wanna, uh, we're going to close this way. I want to ask you to, if, if this speaks to you in some way, and maybe you're a person who, who gives you know, regularly and generously, but you sense the Lord speaking to you through this passage of Scripture and, and the comments I've made today. I want to ask you to do something really uncomfortable. Oh, Scott, would you come up? Uh, watch Scott come up. No. <laughs> go, Scott, go. Go, Scott, go. What I want to ask you to do is to take a step of faith this morning. What I want to do is ask you to, to, to come up front and just kind of spread out up here 
If you feel like God's speaking to you about life-changing generosity, he wants you to become a more generous person or a more consistently generous person than you are, I want to read a passage of Scripture over you that I believe is a promise, that there's a prophetic promise that I, I want to encourage you to, you know, uh, if you're really bold, to have this tattooed somewhere on your body <laughs> so that you will look back at this moment and that tattoo every time you come to that point where I can't, I, I don't think I can be generous anymore. Where the, where the promise has brought you to this place where God is saying, I want to make you rich in the most important ways in your life, things you've prayed for and labored for. They're tethered and tied to this generosity thing. And you can't, you just can't do it anymore. And this could apply to any area of your life besides this, because some of you, it's about loving someone who's hard to love. Some of you, it's about the, the career you have. Some, it, there's all kinds of places where we come to the end of ourselves. And Jesus just stands right there and says, come to me, all you who are weary, weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke on you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when you're at that moment where it's hard to keep pressing on because you feel like I don't have anything, I, I am weary how can I take a yoke? That, doesn't, that, doesn't that crush you more? No, because you're yoked with him. And every farmer knows you yoke two animals together and they can do from seven to 15 times more than one animal can do. And how much do you think a broken, beaten down person like yourself is going to add to the equation? For the most part, it's the other animal you're yoked to that's going to do the work. And Jesus is saying, that's the picture. Now, that's not a real sort of like, you know, cool, hip-sounding picture. Uh, but in that culture, they got it. It was like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, I can be yoked together with Jesus. My life would be totally different if that happened. So I want to ask you, Scott's just going to play. And I want you to just walk up here. We're not going to sing anything. This is just a step of faith where you're saying, God, I, open, I want to open my heart up and I want to grow as a generous person because Jesus was generous and he lives in me and I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lived in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me, who loved me and died for me. And I want that life you have, Jesus, that you promise I will be rich in character. I'll be rich in security. I'll be rich in influence. I'll be rich and generosity. I'll be rich in all the ways you're rich. You paid the price so I, a broken down person at the end of themselves, can experience more of what you have, more of who you are, more of your faithfulness, more of your integrity, more of your hard work, more of every good quality that is, it's possible to, of which to conceive. That comes through Jesus. And, you know, if you walk up front here, and if you want to do that, why don't you just walk up right now? There's no, no, just as I am singing. I want to read this passage over you. And I just want you guys that come up here, and I think a lot of us are already there, so this isn't like, uh, uh, you know, like the in and out group. It's just God speaking to different people in, in a specific way. And I want to read this passage to you. It 
And after I read, I'm just going to pray and we're just going to dismiss. This is a promise for you to hold on to as you're, as you're, you're looking at this road of a life of generosity. And Paul said this in the next chapter to these same Corinthians. So close your eyes for a second. And just be quiet and still. Because this is this is God's word. It's God's voice. It's a seed, an imperishable seed that's going to go into your 